Right, so, um, hello everyone. So, when asked why I was a Christian, I would always tell people how I became a Christian, and I realised that actually that's not why I am a Christian, that's why I became a Christian. And I realised the reason I am a Christian is because I actually believe it's true. I love apologetics, which... I love apologetics, which means basically defense of the faith, and I'm always encouraged by 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with great, with gentleness and respect. So, a while ago I mentioned this interest um, to Dylan, and he said oh, could you perhaps do like a 10-minute talk on the authenticity of the Bible? And I said, well, at the moment, probably not, because I've just had jaw surgery, I've got my braces, I'm not going to feel very confident going up there. So I thought he'll, you know, he'll be sympathetic to that and he'll understand. <laughs> so we can see how that went. Um, yeah, he kind of rolled his eyes and he sort of lifted his eyes and just said, didn't Moses have a stutter, son? So um, basically, here I am. So this is a little talk on the authenticity of the Bible. So this is such a massive subject and there's so much evidence out there. But today I'm going to concentrate on the trustworthiness of the Bible as a record of history, reality and truth. So firstly, does the Bible itself claim to be true? Yes, the Bible claims itself to be perfect and absolute truth. And I found so much scripture on that through the Bible. Um, so much of it. I've got some up here, but there is so much more. This is just sort of what I put across yeah, today. So, the Bible we know today was written 1,400 over, sorry, was written over 1,400 years across three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and three languages by over 40 different authors from multiple cultural contexts and different socio-economic background, ranging from kings to shepherds, doctors, judges, international missionaries, prophets, poets, farmers, fishermen, and more. And yet their message remains the same. It has an underlying unity of purpose and thought through it. This in itself is remarkable. So, secondly, how do we know... Oh, sorry, what... So how do we know that the Bible we hold in our hands today is the one that was originally written? So we can know this because we have so many manuscript copies of the Bible from all different times and all different places in the world. Historians ask questions about ancient manuscripts that help us determine we can trust their ancient writing. So they ask how many copies we have of something. They ask how close are those copies in time to the original? And they ask, how close in time is the original that was written from the events that it reports to record? So, you'll be happy to hear the Bible stands up really well. So we can go on. So the second, sorry, so for instance, we have 251 known manuscripts on Caesar. So 251, telling us about Caesar. The second most manuscripts that, we ha that have been found are Homer's Iliad. And we have 1,757 of those, so a lot more. 
the New Testament has over 5,800 complete or fragmented manuscripts catalogued, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages. Yes, even the second on the list is still dwarfed by the New Testament, which has more than three times the Greek manuscripts as the Iliad, plus the 15,000 manuscripts in other languages. The New Testament has, preserved, has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature. This troubles sceptics because if they reject the reliability of the New Testament, then they must also consider all other ancient manuscripts unreliable. Yeah. Yeah. So sir, thirdly, we can ask the question, is the Bible true? And I think the reliability of that is in the details. So the understanding of geography, the places, the names of roads, the flora, the fact that there are sycamore fig trees in Jericho and not other places. The Bible gets all the details right. So there have been literally thousands of archaeological discoveries in the past century that support every book in the Bible. These biblical records can be and are used as a... Sorry. These biblical records can be and are used as are other ancient documents in archaeological work. In other words, not only does archaeology confirm that the Bible is historically accurate, but professional archaeologists actually use the Bible to guide in their work. The great Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gluick, who is known to be one of the top three archaeologists in history, has stated the following... No archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a single properly understood biblical statement. Wow. I had literally pages of examples of this, but we would literally be here till tonight. So, but it's all out there. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about one that I just myself found really fascinating. So, in 2002, an Israeli scholar by the name of Talilan, did some seemingly quite boring work. She sorted through documents, engraving scraps of papyrus and the like from the time period surrounding Jesus and the apostles in order to make a list of over 3,000 personal names. So basically, she made a phone book out of an ancient dump. Um, it was as if she were... Conf oh, sorry. Because of her work, it became possible for the first time to find out what personal names were the most popular during the time of Jesus. So, in first century Judea, the most popular names were number one, Simon, number two, Joseph, number three, Lazarus, four, Judas, five, John, six, Jesus, nine, Matthew, 11 James. Now, the thing I found fascinating about this is the fact that I could, um, is the way those names are used in the Bible. Because in my family, when we were growing up, there were quite a few Jacks. So if you just kind of said in conversation, oh, saw Jack today, no one would really know who you're talking about. So, um, <laughs> so we, we would use identifiers, but it became very a natural thing. And so we would, we, turned out we would have Jan's Jack and we'd have Minecraft Jack and as soon as we, that was literally just their names in our house and you'd say that and then for the rest of the sentence you didn't have to keep saying Jan's Jack 
because you had identified which Jack, you then carry on talking about him. Um, the same if we're in our house you say Fred, we know you mean our neighbour. Now we always say Margaret next door because we have a few Margarets in our life. So she is Margaret next door. We don't say her name is Margaret because we need to remind ourselves that our name, neighbour's name is Margaret. It's an identifier. Yeah. identifier. So same in this church. If, for instance, we were just to say Brad, everyone would go, aha. Now, if you throw out there, Josh came in <laughs> slightly, you know, we do. Yeah. So we might use last names. I know, you know, we, we tend to have like Hope's Josh. We have Homed, yeah, Homed um, Church Josh. You know, there's there's sort of things we say. So, um, and it's really interesting when you um, look in the Bible because this is how it's it's written. Because you've got like. Um, Simon, which is number one, Simon Cephas, Simon the leper, Simon Peter, Simon of Cyrene, Simon the tanner, James, which is number 11, the son of Zebedee, John, number five, his brother, John the Baptist, Jesus, number six, Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew, number nine, the tax collector, Judas, number four, of Iscariot. And then you've got names like Philip, number 61, he's always just referred to as Philip. Bartholomew, number 50, is always just referred to as Bartholomew, and Thomas, which isn't even in the top 100, Thomas. So, um, <laughs> so the nine top nine popular Jewish male names are used by 41% of the population at that time in the region. So outside of the Bible, she, she found out that 41% of men were called by the top nine names inside the new testament 40 percent of men use the have these names in each one of the five books including acts so not over the five books but in each of the five books 40 percent of the men have these top nine names so it actually is a statistically proven pattern so why is this important? Well, if the gospel writers really had no solid contact with the characters in the stories, if they were writing decades later and had never visited the lands about which they were writing, because Mark wrote in Rome, Luke in Greece, John in Turkey, Matthew most likely was in Judea, getting the names right would be unlikely to the point of impossible. It would be like, it would be as if a person who had never stepped outside of Toddington were attempting <laughs> to, write, <laughs> to write a story about people living in Portugal 60 years ago. And the writer perfectly captured all the details of the personal names of the day without travelling, without the internet, without encyclopedias or libraries. Clearly, guesses and intuitions about Portuguese names from over half a century earlier are exceedingly unlikely to match the real situation on the ground. But this new research, and this is only since 2002 they've known this, side noting another, oh sorry, but this new research shows that the gospel writers were spot on in regard to the popularity, frequency, proportion and usage of personal names in the text of scripture, yeah. indicating very deep familiarity with life in the exact area and the time frame of Jesus and the earliest followers. So, and just an interesting side note, another country not far away, where there was also a large Jewish community in the first century, was Greco-Roman Egypt, and the top names were Lazarus, Sabbateus, Joseph, Josephus, Pappus, Ptolemaeus, Samuel. 
Why do we not read about Sabbateuses in the Bible? Because writers were not writing about Greco-Roman Egypt in the first century. They were writing about Judea, Palestine. Unless you're coming with a predisposition against miracles, you cannot deny that the Bible is the most attested, reliable, ancient book that there is. Full stop. question is then why do we not just take it as a reliable book but as an authority within our lives this is where how close in time is the original that was written from the events that it reports to record and how close are the copies in time to the original are important if there is too much into time in between either there may be points of vulnerability legend and error can creep in it could be said the miracles were added later, that there is the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith. This, however, is not an idea that holds water. Yeah. The New Testament is eyewitnesses writing in the life of other eyewitnesses. Matthew's Gospel is written in 40 to 60 AD, Mark's 45 to 60 AD. The Gospels were written much too early for legend to develop in the text. Scholars have researched that for legend to develop, you need a vast amount of time to elapse and to ensure that very few people know the story, so i.e. a story passed on from generation to generation within a family. However, if a story is shared and spreads quickly till many people know about it, those who originally experienced the actual events will be around to confirm or refute the retelling of the events. This then makes it highly impossible for legend to creep in, as is the case with the story of Jesus. So, looking at the timeline historically, most people believe Jesus died in 33 AD. The stories of his life and teaching passed down through and across different communities where many people early on started worshipping Jesus as Lord. The Gospels or the Jesus story was written down sometime between 68 and 90 AD there was only a lapse of 35 to 55 years between Jesus' death and the writings which record his life. This means that when the Gospels were written, there were still eyewitnesses that could be questioned and it would be easy for them to confirm or reject what was being said. For example, in Mark 15, the person who helped Jesus carry the cross is named Simon of Cyrene. Simon. The expectation being that this could be confirmed at the time. So, as the evidence suggests, because the Gospels were written early and spread too quickly and widely for the story to develop without being fully verified, we have every reason to trust that the Gospels faithfully recorded what the early eyewitnesses actually saw and experienced of Jesus, miracles and all. To end... Um, the Gospel eyewitnesses' accounts aren't the only ancient description of Jesus. There are also non-Christian descriptions of Jesus. And I, I couldn't believe there's so much of this out there. In fact, many hostile pagan and Jewish sources describe Jesus. Many elements of the biblical record are confirmed by these non-Christian accounts. So all of this I'm about, I'm just about to read to you. This is all from non-Christians, often actually very hostile accounts as well. 
So Jesus was born and lived in Palestine. He was born supposedly to a virgin and had an earthly father who was a carpenter. He was a teacher who taught that through repentance and belief, all followers would become brothers and sisters. He led the Jews away from their beliefs. He was a wise man who claimed to be God and Messiah. He had unusual magical powers and performed miraculous deeds. He healed the lame. He accurately predicted the future. He was persecuted by the Jews for what he said betrayed, sorry, persecuted by the Jews for what he said, betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He was beaten with rods, forced to drink vinegar and wear a crown of thorns. He was crucified on the eve of the Passover and his cru this crucifixion occurred under the direction of Pontius Pilate during the time of Tiberius. On the day of his crucifixion, the sky grew dark and there was an earthquake. Wow. Non-Christian reports. Afterwards, he was buried in a tomb and the tomb was later found to be empty. He appeared to his disciples, resurrected from the grave and showed them his wounds. These disciples then told others Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Jesus' disciples and followers upheld a high moral code. One of them was named Matthias. The disciples were also persecuted for their faith, but were martyred and without changing their claims. They met regularly to worship Jesus, even after his death. Remember, all that came from non-Christian and often hostile ancient accounts. So to sum up, the Bible's re reliability is proven in both its accurate transmission and its historical accuracy. In fact, the Bible is the most authentic historical document in existence. Treasure it. Come on, come on, that's good. That was absolutely brilliant, son. I think we need some more of that. Uh, can I say, Cedar, if you want to carry on, I, more than happy, you know, to chill. I was, I won't lie, I was wondering, where are you going with these names? And then when you said that, I was like, wow, that is absolutely incredible. So, absolutely brilliant, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Did you enjoy it? I actually did. There we go, there we go. <laughs> so, we need to, yeah, it, it's, yeah, 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 that's it. <laughs> So how do you go after that? That's like the worst thing to follow. Yeah. But you know, the, the reason I asked Son to do that is because Paul did a great job last week um, in, in Nehemiah chapter 8, and it talks about the word of the Lord and the book of the law being found. And I think that so often in our modern age is we talk about the Bible as an authority, but then there are people coming in as skeptics wondering, can we actually trust this book as an authority? You know, historically and all of that, there's that faith element and then there's that historical element. And the historical is actually really, really strong in support of Christianity. Yet so often we as Christians are on the back foot because we think that science is against us when actually science is for us. A lot of the time science came from, science came from Christians. Yeah. Yeah, look at the history of it. Look at the development of it. And I think that as we are looking at Nehemiah now, I'm just going to read a few verses here, make a few comments, and then we're going to end with some worship, I think. It'll be special. But Nehemiah chapter 9, to build for what son and, uh, and Paul, what they were speaking on, I just want us to um, open our hearts now to what this word is. Because remember, the whole point of Nehemiah was they were building a wall, and then they were building a platform, and the platform was for the word of God. 
They weren't building a platform for their own egos, their own pride, their own gain. It was so that Ezra the scribe could stand on that platform and proclaim the word of the Lord. And so often I think that in our day, we've taken the Bible and we've put it to one side in the name of our feelings and experience so that that is elevated above the word of God. And then suddenly when the Bible challenges us in a postmodern world, we decide to change it to mean something different so it becomes my truth, not the truth. And you know what Jesus says? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am the way, a truth, and a life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that sounds like an exclusive statement if you're in a postmodern age. But it, the truth is the truth. You cannot deny it, but you can fight against it. And what I'm, what I'm challenging you with today is really what Son touched on was the authority of the Word of God in our lives in the 21st century. Because genuinely, I see so many Christians growing up in Christian homes, coming with, you know, being so affected in a liberal culture that you walk into the church world and the church world looks exactly the same like the world. Come on. It's... It, Guys, I also need help this morning, so say some amens, you know. <laughs> Don't be nasty, so I know. You know why? Because I grew up as a millennial in youth groups, and you know in youth groups what they used to say? It's about relationship, not about rules. Yeah? Anyone been to youth camps or whatever? It's all about relationship. It's not about rules. So suddenly you come to Christ, and you're like, hey, hey, hey. Oh, well, the Word of God is just rules. So I just like to worship. That's what we say because we've grown up in a culture which elevates your experience above the truth and the word and it leads to deception and death and we are seeing the consequences of youth growing up in churches, Christian homes, going off to university and falling away. Why? Because they haven't got the truth to stand on. And when you look at it, I'm saying, uh, my youth leader, he was a tough guy, but man, he gave the word of God to us. He didn't mince his words. He didn't mess around. And I'm so grateful to God. Did I agree with him all the time? No, we challenged him. We pushed him. But he just said, you know what? If you can prove from scripture why I'm wrong, then you can, I will repent and change. But come with the Bible. So many people come to debate me. And you know what they bring? Oh, my experience. <laughs> Thank you, Drew. <laughs> Your experience will die with you. Your experience will not be preached about in 200 years. What will be preached about is the gospel, the word of God, that 2,000 years later, we can stand here knowing we stand on a historical book, but also a book that impacts our lives today. My challenge to you is in a postmodern age, authority, remember the word authority came from the word author. Author, authority. So the author had the power to determine the meaning of what they had written. That's where authority comes from. Now you look at when we read the Bible, and I know what we mean. We read it and we say, well, what does it mean to you? We don't even see that that is deception disguised. Forget about what it means to you first. Start with what does it mean to the original author and what they meant when they wrote that? Because that's how you find truth. And then the question is, how do I apply this truth to my life? Yeah, yeah. Because what we're doing today is you're reading the Bible like, what does it mean to you? Well, I think, and, and you hear people say all the time, oh, well, it could mean a thousand different things. No. There's one meaning, many applications. Yeah. 
You've got it. You got. There's hard work in defending and getting to that meaning. And this is why it's so humbling preaching the word of God. But when we're in this um, generation, we've got to be very careful because the traditions that we've grown up with in youth groups, we're starting to reap the fruit of it now. And we've tried to make it palpable. And you know what's so interesting in this church that I found? The tougher messages, you know what they offend? They don't offend the lost, they offend the Christians. Am I preaching? (laughs) And, and, And I find it interesting that a lot of people that are coming to Christ now are saying to me, and the ones that I think, oh, this could offend somebody, you know what? And remember, I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm trying to challenge. Just remember, let's just say, take the word offense out. But, but you know when, what I find so interesting is it's, a, it's this, this mindset that's infected us with craziness that we're trying to be so nice because we think being nice will win people to Christ. Being nice could get people to hell. I was actually trying to be nice in that statement. I don't know what happened. No, I'm, I'm serious because we've got the seeker-sensitive model in our minds that actually what a generation is longing for is to know where is the line, where is the truth, where is the black and white line that I can know that, you know what, okay, Nehemiah 9, let's read this quickly. Uh, Nehemiah 9 verse 1 to 5, uh, just four verses here, it says this, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting, can you say Fasting. And wearing sackcloth, can you say sackcloth? And having dust on their heads, can you say dust? Come on, this is what we're going to do next week, people. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood, can you say stood? In their places and confessed their sins. Can you say their sins? Can you say my sins? Uh-oh. And the wickedness of their Fathers, just notice something. They stood in their place and they confessed not just the other people's sins, their sins. So often in this generation, we love pointing out the faults in others, but we don't like looking in the mirror. Maybe it's time we put down the binoculars and pick up the mirror. Come on. You all have an opinion about a politician and what they're doing wrong. When was the last time we looked in the mirror and said, actually, what are my sins I need to confess and repent of? We so, oh man, we're arrogant. And you know what they also confess is the wickedness of their fathers. You're not so powerful about that. Not everything you grew up with is something to carry on with. So often in Christian homes, I said, well, my dad did it like this. Well, my dad used to get drunk on the weekend. It's okay to get drunk too. You know what that is, sin? Come on. The acceptable sins in our culture, drunkenness, greed, slandering, gossiping. We like the big ones that don't affect us that are out there. But what about the ones where we put down the binoculars, we pick up the mirror and say, actually, Lord, I'm convicted. I need to repent of my sins. Jesus. Did you know what the word sin meant? Miss the mark. Yeah. Miss the target was an archery term. Now, I was going to get a bow and arrow, but... um, I, I just know the risk assessment won't pass it, whatever, you know. We in Britain, eh? In Africa, we'd probably have a gun. But here's the thing. <laughs> you get a bow and arrow, you shoot at the target, and if you missed it, it was called sin. That's what the illustration was. That's what it meant. But you know, as I was thinking about this, is you know what we do as millennials and Gen Zs? 
We, we, we don't sin anymore. Why? Because we just moved the target. Yeah. <laughs> it used to mean miss the target. Now it's like, let's move the target. Yeah. Because what we're going to do is because it's an uncomfortable truth that actually affects my life and actually has a le- level of sacrifice and laying down my life, I'm just going to move it. You know, I used to love playing cricket and even at church camps and stuff uh, or church days or whatever, you guys have seen me do this. It's for fun. It's not like serious, guys. But I'll stand. If I'm the wicket keeper, you better watch out because those wickets are going to move with me. <laughs> I will get you out one way or another, even if it mo- means moving the wickets. Now, I don't know about you, but we have some competitive people in the church, and they get very annoyed when I do that. Can you believe it? Why? Why? But you know what's so funny? They get annoyed about that, and I wonder how many of us get annoyed about this generation moving the mark all the time and actually laying down the Word of God and just throwing it on the floor and saying, actually, I'll live my life my way. Look at the consequences of this. Look at the world around us. Now, this nation gets to a point where they confess all of their sins. They own it, but they don't live in it. There's, there's a freedom that comes as a result. And it says this in verse 3. They stood. Can you say stood? stood? Where they were. So they stood in their places, and they stood where they were, and they read from what? The book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, six hours, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. And then it says, standing on the stairs were the Levites. And in verse 5 it says, and the Levites said, there are a bunch of names, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise you alone are the Lord you made the heavens even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts the earth and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them you give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you in verse 17 they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them they became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. You know, I love this because repentance is not a popular word in our generation. You know what repentance meant? It meant metanoia. It meant to change your mind. It means you you don't just say, oh, I'm so sorry of this sin. It's actually I'm turning away and I'm walking in a different direction. Did you know repentance is actually a a word that a lot of people have tried to get rid of and they say, oh no, because of Jesus dying on the cross, we no longer need to repent. Well, let me just do something quickly. Um, Let's go quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is post the cross of Jesus Christ. This is after the blood of Christ. And he says this, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see my letter hurt you. Can you say, ouch? Sometimes a loving thing hurts, but only for a little while, he said. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to what? Repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and wholeness. That word salvation means wholeness and fullness and leaves no regret. There's no shame. There's no guilt that's left behind. But worldly sorrow brings death. And then it says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing to, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. 
I don't know about you, but that's not a popular verse. But you know what I see so often in Christianity is we want to feel sorry about our sins because we got caught rather than saying actually godly sorrow is different to worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance because it changes our minds. Have you ever sinned and you felt that guilt and that shame and then you're like, oh my goodness, I don't have to live in this anymore. Uh, Lord, please forgive me. And and remember, in the New Testament, there is a difference because you're praying from a place of forgiveness, not for forgiveness. When you've come to Christ and the cross, all your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for in the cross of Christ. People disagree with me on that. I say, well, Dylan, God can't forgive your future sins. You better hope he can forgive your future sins. Because when he died, all your sins were in the future. (laughs) We're all in a bit of trouble if that doesn't work. You know, the, the, the gospel is that, because some people are like, well, Dill, you know, confession is good for your soul. You know why? Because it reminds you who God is. It's not, it's not like, hey, oh, Lord, I, I'm, I, I'm, you know, there is, there is a holy fear of God. Genuine. We don't talk about it enough. But also, there's not a shame in coming to your Father in heaven and saying, Lord, actually, I'm deeply sorry about this. I'm deeply sorry. And the Bible actually talks about confessing your sins one to another. There's something about when you bring it into the light, the power of the light breaks the darkness in your life. Oh. Me and my wife, you know, she doesn't like it, but I like to read. Um, but at night time, she wants that light off. So normally sometimes I have to sneak in with uh, the light. But if she's facing the way that I'm coming in, if I wake her, oh man. Yeah. Why? Because the light is more powerful when it's in the darkness. It just dispels the darkness around it. But here's the thing. Repentance. Oh, man. Uh, Our our generation. I'm I'm really going to try to be nice. Um, Our generation lifts up this thing of tolerance. Everything that I'm saying today, some of you are like, he is so intolerant. Some of you are thinking that. Some of you are like, Dill, don't be so hectic. You're going to destroy the church. You know what I'm seeing? God's building the church on his word. Seriously, I'd rather have 10 people in this church that love the Bible, love Jesus Christ and serve his purposes seriously than just numbers for the sake of numbers. I've dealt with that thing in my heart a while ago and I'm at peace with it. Come on, I'm an introvert. I don't really mind. But, but tolerance, you know, it's, it's, you know what's so interesting is the intolerance of people that think that I'm intolerant is so great. But there's a blindness. Because we all have things that we see as black and white, but we just don't like to label it that. But actually it's time that coming to the word of God and saying, Lord, I want conviction, not condemnation. That's my heart for you. It's saying, I don't want it. If, if any of you came and you sat in all the counseling sessions I've been in, as a result of people not building their lives on the Word of God, you would be just as passionate as I am. Because you sit there and you see the pain, you see the trauma, and you know what, I've, I've made this, I was speaking to a friend yesterday, and I just had to, you know, I'm just like, bro, do you want me to be honest, or do you want me to just stroke you right now? And he's like, be honest. So I was honest. He didn't like it, but I said, bro, you know I love you and I want the best for you. I'm not going to stand in 10 years' time with a broken marriage and then you're going to look at me and say, Dill, why don't you say something? 
Come on. We need boldness to come back into the pulpit. We need boldness to come back to the gospel. You know, um, we've taken the book of the law out and we've just tried to give people Jesus. And people in this generation are like, well, why do I need him? I'm a good person. Why do I need saving if I'm actually pretty good? I don't have sins. They have sins. I'm not Hitler. That's what people say. Come on. We all think of ourselves as good people, and Ray Comfort, I love his, his ministry, but he talks about the law has been taken out of the gospel. So suddenly when I say, I, we used to do it in South Africa, we go through the Ten Commandments, and we say, hey, have you ever stolen something? Yeah, just a cookie. What does that make you? A thief. Someone said a stealer. <laughs> You're a thief. Have you ever lied? No, you just lied. Yes. What does that make you? A liar. Have you ever committed adultery? Some people are like, yes. Some are like, no. Jesus said, have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart or a man? If you have, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Anyone done that? I would never. <laughs> Come on. Jesus came. Uh, they said, have you ever murdered somebody? Some are like, no. <laughs> Please do not. Raise your hand. <laughs> I know you South African people. Keep your hands down. <laughs> you haven't murdered. Well, the Bible says if you've even hated after a brother in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. What does that make you? A murderer. You go, I could go through that thing. You know the best one? Have you ever coveted after someone else's ox? <laughs> no. Willem's ox, No. But you know, if we do covet after that new iPhone, yeah. come on, you know, uh, you know, yeah. you know what you covet after is the Instagram picture of the person's holiday. Yeah. You know what you covet after these days is that person's relationships and likes on Facebook. Yeah. Come on, this stuff's real. Yeah. It's crazy. We're allowing little ticks of likes of people that we hardly even know to determine our faith with God. And then we allow insecurity to define and drive our lives rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say, guys, so surely it gets to the point where we go and say, I am a filthy, rotten sinner in need of saving. Amen. I'm okay with saying that about myself. Because you know, when Jesus comes into our lives, he changes it. But it's like, I love Ray's illustration where he talks about, it's like giving someone a parachute on a plane and saying, here's the parachute. What I want you to do is put this parachute on and it's just for your comfort. It's, I've got some nice backrest. You know, you can get to sleep on it nicely. So you put on the parachute and you think, this is fantastic on the flight for the first 10 minutes. And then you realize you're getting a bit of back pain. It's a bit uncomfortable. You can't lean your neck back. So what do you do? You take the parachute off and you throw it down. You're like, that thing was a lie. That wasn't good. But if I come to the same person and I say, here's a parachute, but here's the situation. The pilot is dodgy. He is going to, he's going to crash his plane and you know, it's going to, we're going to have some technical faults and there's going to be an opportunity to jump out the plane and there are only two parachutes. I'm giving you one of these parachutes. Uh, I don't know when it will be on this 10-hour flight, but it will be at some point on this flight. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to be taking that parachute off? <laughs> I get nervous when someone walks to the emergency exit of the airplane, you know, when it's flying and they're standing by the bathroom and there's just a lever that says, you know, 
to open. I'm like, surely there must be a lock on that. You know, like surely someone needs to sort that lock out. I get nervous about that. If someone came and told me that, I don't care who and how crazy they look, that backpack, that parachute is not coming off. Why? Because they've told me about the danger of not wearing the backpack, the, the parachute. And if, I ta- if the uncomforts of life come because of it, I don't care because I'm holding to that parachute because I know that parachute will save my life. You see, the problem is we're giving people Jesus without any consequence of not having Christ. And so suddenly when life gets a bit turbulent, what do we do? Take them off. What's next? Personal development world. Here we come. YouTube. Find me a mentor. Come on. It's, It's gone crazy because notice what they said. They said they appointed, they refused to listen. And in their hearts, they appointed a new leader to lead them back into slavery. They appointed a new leader to lead them back into slavery. Can I just say this? Be careful who you appoint to lead you. Because you know what a leader is? Someone who influences you. And you know, you know what I see with us? I'm going to talk for us younger people here. And I know you older guys love YouTube too. Don't lie. You know you go down that YouTube spiral. But be very careful of who starts showing up on your Instagram feeds or your Facebook feeds. Because that person has more influence in a 30-second reel than you realize. They can start determining your mindset, your viewpoint on life more than you realize. But what I'll ask you the question is, are you disappointing people to say what you want to hear or people who say what you need to hear? Because that's where freedom is. Because we want freedom, but we don't want the cost of the freedom or the journey of that freedom. And there is a journey and there is a cost to pay in order to walk in the fullness of God. Amen. Amen. Come on. Thank you. One person clapping. This, this one might, this is an interesting one. Jonathan Edwards, who knows who Jonathan Edwards was? Come on. Great, uh, the awakening, the great awakening, I think 1700s. He had a, a, a statement, his sermon, one of his most famous, probably his most famous sermon was, it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Crazy sermon. It was so powerful that people were literally clinging to the posts afterwards, feeling like they were going to fall into the fires of hell because of eternity gripping their hearts. But you know what's interesting about that sermon? I, I forget, it was 95 or 85% of people, they did a survey years and years later, are still walking with Jesus Christ as a result of their conversion at that meeting. You know what the fallaway rate is in modern day Christianity? Probably 85, 95% are falling away, not staying. And my question is, maybe in our generation, what we've changed that sermon title to is what? God in the hands of angry sinners. Because we feel we are God and therefore we can determine who God is. You know, I love it. It says God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. When you're sitting here as a younger person, what you think is, hey, that God has no right to be angry. Well, who gave you that right? Does that make you angry? Think about it. We've made ourselves God and we're bearing the consequences of it. So, (laughs) that's called freedom, people. (laughs) That's called freedom. Can I also say, who are you allowing to influence your life? And my end here is, you know, some of us, we love watching the news. And you might be, you know, you love your your liberal commentators, you like your right-wing media, whatever it is, what, I don't care what it is you're into. Can I say this? You need to get into the Word of God. 
Forget about the politics. Come to the word of the Lord. Take the politics and lay it to one side and allow Jesus to be the loudest voice in your life. Amen? Amen. Come on. So I wonder, um, as we close here, there's, four, there's three verses. I'm just going to read. I feel this prophetically over us. It says, you gave them kingdoms, verse 22, and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. And it says, you made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. I'm believing God that we're going to raise up sons and daughters of God that can take the land for Jesus Christ. But you're going to need to be secure in who you are in Christ. And you know what sonship is? It is a free gift from God. But let us not put the law of the Lord behind our backs. Remember, Jesus fulfilled the law. But then there are New Testament commandments that he calls us to live in. He empowers us to walk in. He doesn't just leave us and say, oh, good luck, you know, obey so that you can be loved. No, no, no. You are loved, therefore obey. You see the difference? It's not an earning, it's not an achieving, but it's a living from that earned right by the cross of Christ. Yeah, it's a difference. People are like, Dill, isn't the law, isn't like commandments, aren't they legalistic? No, 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 no. You can make a commandment legalistic. It's the heart behind it. Yeah. Amen. You can come and serve a church in a free way or a legalistic way. Yeah. Hey, I've got to pour these coffees or else I'm not going to heaven. Yeah, true dear. <laughs> Is the Lord just speaking? Okay. I don't even want to be here. <laughs> but I know if I don't get my church points this week, I might be low for eternity. That's not the gospel. The gospel is he's taking you to every heart of heaven. Therefore, you get to be part of a body and lay down your life in joy and surrender and be part of a community, laying down your life, saying, God, I get to serve you. I'm not serving you to earn anything. I'm serving you because I love you, Lord. Yeah. It's a totally different mindset. And it says this, as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Can you start playing, please, Tim? Get the anointing going. Yeah. It says, as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Anyone know that boredom is an enemy to you? Anyone here, you know, like you're doing well with Jesus whilst it's all busy and stuff, and then things stop and you get rest, and then your sin levels just shoot right up. Men, ladies, pornographic addictions, boredom, help, no. Don't go there. Well, the world's already there. Parents are like, oh, my child doesn't, you know, don't presume. There's a real, real enemy out there, and he is trying to take people out, and he is doing a good job at times. But what I want to encourage you is don't refuse to listen to the Word of God. Don't refuse to listen to what God is saying. God loves you. But like Sonia was saying, this is a book that you have to make a decision. Will I live my life by this book? I remember Angus Buchan, one of my favorite preachers, and he had this Bible, and it was just in tatters. And he'd say this all the time as a young, newly saved 17-year-old in a meeting. And he'd say, I've never met a man whose Bible is in tatters, whose life is also in tatters. Yeah. You get the Word of God into your life and you build it into your very DNA. You, there's a blessing upon the Word. Not in legalism, but in freedom. 
and saying, God, I want to build my life on your rock and your word. Do you know how many great ideas I have? So many. My wife doesn't agree with a lot of them. She's like, please don't do that. But you know what convicts me is when I read this word, again, like last year, I was thinking, what sins am I just living with that I'm just allowing to sit in my home? Like Zelna was saying in the prayer meeting, like weeds that have grown up with us in our mindset. We just think this is normal. This is okay. I need a moment to actually just come before God, pick up the mirror and say, Lord, I want to repent and come into a deeper relationship with you. I don't want to live in bondage. I don't know anyone that does. There's freedom available in Christ. And I, I had a, a, an electric meter go on a property this week. Anyone called the call center recently? Now, a lot of them are in South Africa. And some are in India. And you phone them. And my goodness, it, it's, a, it, it's a nightmare. It, it's, it's like death warmed up. You, you do the phone call. And I time it for, as the call center starts, you phone through. And what do you get through to someone and hopefully they can speak English. And you start talking and you say, look, my meter's not working, da, da, da. They're like, okay, so try this. Push the A button, push the A button, push the B button, push the B button. I'm like, this thing's not working, trust me. I've done these a few times. Can you get someone out? We need an engineer to replace it. Sir, we've got our system we've got to go with. Okay, cool. Line cuts out. It's amazing how often that happens. Then you phone, you wait another hour, you get through, and they say, so you've got to push the A button, press the B button. Oh, well, before we can send an engineer out, we got our system. I know, I've just been through that. I'm remaining calm because I don't get angry because I'm a Christian. And here's what I'm going to say is the next one. You know, three times, friends, I had to phone this thing. Eventually, they sent the engineer out. My question to you is you have a direct line to the Father in heaven. Why do you keep phoning call centers and people around you that can't help you instead of going to the direct line to the Father in heaven who sends the best engineer, I know the Holy Spirit, into your heart that transforms you and says, you know what, stop trying to push these buttons and make your electric meter work. I'm going to give you something new. I'm going to make you a new creation. Wow, what was that? <laughs> That was a demon in the guitar. <laughs> the, now the Holy Spirit's gone. No, just kidding. Um, but the Holy Spirit comes in and He renews your heart. He makes you new. He makes you a new creation. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But it has to be a deep realization of you not coming to Jesus just for a comfortable life. You come into Christ to save your life. He is the Savior. He's not just the repairer of your life. He is the one who gives you a totally new life. But you have to partner with Him in that journey. Amen. So can we stand? And I'd like to pray for you. I'd like us to worship the Lord. Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much now, Lord, for what you have done in your word. Thank you for every writer of this book. Thank you for us having such accessible um, ability today to your word. I pray we would not waste this opportunity. I pray your word would grip our hearts. These aren't just good ideas. This is God ideas. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd convict our hearts where we've allowed opinions of man to determine truth, where we've allowed experience to determine truth. I pray, Father God, your truth would determine our experience going forward. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd come and just minister in our hearts, convict people deeply. 
There would not be condemnation, but a spirit of conviction today. And Lord, I pray for godly sorrow that leads to repentance and leaves no regrets. I pray no shame would be in this room as people come to you in faith and in joy. In Jesus' name.